Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Ivan Dorischuk. Ivan is the lead singer and songwriter for Montreal synth-pop band Men Without Hats, formed in the late 1970s as a garage punk band with his brothers Colin and Stefan. The band released seven studio albums, split up in 1992, and subsequently reformed in the 2010s. There is a 99.9% chance you know Ivan and Men Without Hats from these little ditties. Let's jump right in and find out if Ivan can still dance if he wants to in 2023. Welcome, Ivan, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I'm doing great. I'm in uh, Victoria, BC on uh, Vancouver Island. Excellent. And when did you make the move out there? Because we all closely associate you with Montreal. Yeah, I've been here for 20 years. Moved out here with the whole family. Moved west 20 years ago. And West Coast lifestyle obviously suits you. I love it. Love it. How was your summer? I want to ask if you had any memorable shows. Did a lot of great shows. Yeah, we we did uh, we did mostly North America. We went from L.A. to Florida to Quebec. We did a small tour of Quebec uh, earlier in the year to the West Coast. We were we went all around. Fantastic! So you were keeping busy. Oh yeah. Let's jump right into the question that is surely on all our listeners' minds. Well, you described your original late nineteen seventies lineup as. Three brothers and a gay guy. What is Men Without Hats today, and who makes up the band in 2023? 2023 is uh, myself. My niece, Sahara Sloan, has taken over the duties from her father, Colin. Colin just got named the head of the voice department at the Victoria Conservatory here on the island, so he had to take a break from the band. And uh, we have Sho Murray from the band Shokor, 90s band Shokor, 
And on drums, we have Adrian White from all kinds of bands, from SNFU to Frontline Assembly to Strapping Young Lad. So it's a, it's a good bunch now. Unfortunately, Alan McCarthy, who was in the gay guy in the band, he passed away from from AIDS, complications due to AIDS in uh, 1995. So uh, we still miss him a lot. He was a great guy, great musician he was. But uh, the new lineup is is doing is really rocking. People love it. Sahara's doing a great job. Excellent. Well, that's good to hear. Now, in the 80s, you concentrated on the Canadian and U.S. markets. But Ivan, you've alluded to, in more recent times, you've enjoyed an international following outside of North America. Is it surprising that today you actually reach more people in more places than you did the first time around? Yeah, we've been fortunate. Like I said, like we've been we've toured all over the world, uh, went to places that we never went the first time around. Since I put the band back together in 2010, we've been to Australia, South Africa, South America, Scandinavia, all over Europe. These are places we never went the first time. First time around, we were we were going around in circles in uh, in North America, and uh, so yeah, we've been really fortunate that we've we've kind of crossed generations. I think where it's due in part to being the songs being embedded in in pop culture. It's, even shows like Glee gave us a whole new generation of 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 listeners, and uh, it's uh, in all kind of adult cartoons and everything like that. So on movies and commercials, so it's it's great to go out there and see our we we play shows now we see our original fans but we we also see their kids and sometimes their grandkids come out to see us it's a it's a family event now so it's it's great we're blessed oh that's fantastic and you know embedded is a great word embedded in the culture congratulations are in order as in conjunction with your 40th anniversary in 2020 men without hats had two of your songs inducted into the canadian songwriters hall of fame those being the safety dance and Pop Goes the World. How gratifying was that? And was there an associated ceremony to attend or did COVID get in the way? Well, we were in studio making a record. So we were we were, we were kind of stuck out here, but that was an immense honor for us. We're just, uh, the reason is because we, we have a great, great bunch of fans who have been just supporting us the whole time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's due to the people still listening to the music that we, we get these kind of honors. But, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was a great one for us. That was definitely uh, one of the biggest milestones we've we've reached so far. Well, with your permission, let's please go all the way back at the Ivan Dorischuk story. You are, of course, closely associated with Montreal, but in fact, are not a native Montrealer. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. I was born in Champaign, Illinois, uh, Urbana, Illinois. My dad was at the uh, university. Was born on. I was born on campus at the University of Illinois. My dad was there getting his master's and uh, his PhD, and uh, as soon as he did finish his PhD, we he got a job at the University of Montreal. So we moved we moved to Montreal. I was three years old, and uh, grew up there. My mother was a teacher at uh, McGill University. She was a teacher in the voice department and head of the voice department at McGill University. And uh, I grew up in French. I went to did all my schooling in French. So I'm a I'm a true Canadian, as I say. And uh, it was it was it was a great great growing up in Montreal. Montreal is a very unique place to grow up, especially if you're a musician. It's uh, it's kind of a slice of Europe in North America. So we were exposed to a lot of European music, a lot of different music, and bands like progressive bands like Genesis, things like that would come and play the Montreal Forum to fifteen thousand people, then go down to New York and play the Bottom Line for five hundred people. So we were a bit ahead of the curve as far as a lot of music was concerned we got 
I got, you know, introduced to bands like Kraftwerk and just a lot of, a lot of European influenced, you know, bands. And it was also a big disco city in, in, in the late seventies. And I've always said that new wave music for me was kind of a blend of the progressive synthesizer music that I listened to and disco music. It was synth music that you could dance to. And, uh, that's what, why I kind of brought to the table. And Montreal is also very interesting because it's also very, it was very close to New York. I like to call it the Little Apple. It was, uh, there was a, a disco connection. And it was also one of those, it was like New York in the fact that um, a lot of musicians in Canada seem to uh, need to have, uh, uh, you know, having lived in Montreal on their CV to be, to be you know, sort of a real, real kind of musician. And, and the music scene, the English music scene in Montreal is very small, actually. It's about the size of Hamilton's music scene. And, but it's comprised of musicians from all across the country. So we were, that's it. We got, we touched base with, with guys from east to west that were, you know, coming through Montreal and it was real. There was a lot of, a lot of influences, a lot of different influences in the, in the Montreal scene. Plus the fact that there was no mu- real music industry, all the music industry was in Toronto. So there was a lot more experimentation that was allowed. You knew that, you knew that when you did a show, there wasn't there wasn't some fat cat with a cigar and a big wad of cash at the back of the room checking you out, making sure that you were the new, the next spoons or the next parachute club, you know. So you had the freedom to do a lot more of your own thing. So that that, like I say, there was a lot more experimentation going on in the English music scene in Montreal. It was it was a great place to 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 grow up in. Well, you and your brothers Colin and Stefan attended a French high school in Montreal, and your first real shows as Men Without Hats were in 1977 during the height of the punk era opening up for four shows of Alan Lord at the Hotel Nelson in Old Montreal. Now, back then, the Hotel Nelson was described as basically a flop house. Would you agree with that description? Oh, definitely, definitely. It was, it was a great, uh, it was a great place. It was, uh, I saw a lot of great bands there too. I mean, Lou Reed came through, um, all, all kinds of, you know, sort of punk and neo-punk bands played there. And uh, no, it was, it was just a great, great place to play, great place to, great place to be. Now, Ivan, you were a classically dream musician who kind of transitioned from punk to pop slash new wave. And in 1980, your first album, the 10-inch EP Folk of the 80s, was recorded at Marco Studio in Old Montreal. What do you remember about the excitement around recording your first EP? Oh, it was definitely exciting. It was a great learning experience, first of all, but it was also just, that was the whole punk thing back then it was you know it was DIY do it yourself and everybody was allowed to you didn't have to be like you know a virtuoso on any instrument to 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 be in a band you just had to have the the will and the, the urge to do it and so it, there was um there was a lot of a lot of a lot of freedom there was a lot of change going on in in a lot of areas in art there was video was just making a sort of a, a start off there was a lot of technology changes in in the in the music world there was synthesizers were coming in computers were coming in there was there was changes in all kinds of things so this was kind of a revolution you know right across the board there was clothes were different the hairstyles were different the music was different the videos the movies everything paintings everything it was kind of a an art revolution in the late 70s and beginning in the 80s so it was a, it was exciting times now, a friend of this podcast, Jean-Marc Pissapia, joined Men Without Hats in the early 80s, but left to form The Box. 
just prior to you recording the Rhythm of Youth album and its smash single, The Safety Dance, because the box also shared your management team, Jean-Marc gives a lot of credit to you, Ivan, for paving the way for the subsequent success of the box with their four charting albums and 10 charting singles. In fact, very recently, I caught the box live in concert. Jean-Marc closes the show with his cover of The Safety Dance. Ivan, please share your thoughts on your relationship with Jean-Marc Pisapia back then and today. Oh, we had a great relationship. Like, yeah, he we um, we went to school together, so so uh, we were we were classmates. I said he played keyboards, and he was he was he was you know a front man. A lot of front men have, men have been through my band. Tracy Howe from Rational Youth was another one. So that was that was it. There was uh, it was it was great. Um, he did a great job. I, I'm honored by the fact that he he's plays safety dance and everything like that. And we 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 get along great. Excellent. Well, in 1982, we saw the release of your Rhythm of Youth album recorded at Listen Audio in Old Montreal. Did you have any sense that the Safety Dance was going to be the breakout single and an international hit? Well, got to be truthful. When you're when you're a young, budding songwriter, you think that everything you write is going to be a smash hit. And you just can't understand why everybody's not on board, you know. But it wasn't the first single that we released off the album. We released a song called I Got the Message was the first single we released in Canada. It uh, almost went top ten in Canada. We released Safety Dance. It almost went top top ten. Also, I think they went to number twelve in Canada nationally. And but just the fact that it had charted was, you know, we we had made it. We we thought that was great. We were super stoked. We were we were in studio making our second record when the when the whole thing broke in the states. So that was uh, we were like I say, we were just stoked. We were pleased beyond belief that we were being allowed to to do this for a living. And I understand that it was actually the extended 12-inch club remix that really put the safety dance over the top, and it exploded internationally in uh, 1983. Yeah, that's true. We were we were in studio of making the the, the second record, like I, like I said, Folk of the 80s Part Three, uh, when uh, we got we got a call from the from the label saying, uh, "Okay, you guys, you've got to do a 12-inch remix. Everybody's doing it. It's you, we have to do one for for safety dance, so we did. We just we just spent like half a day doing this thing, and uh, and then sent it off. I mean, I got my influences of making it were actually Grandmaster Flash. I was a big fan of the the sort of nascent rap movement that was was going on, and uh, so that's where the speaking parts come in. I was that was my my sort of white white boy version of of rap in those days. And we thought nothing of it. We just we just sent it off and went back to kept you know kept working on the on the the second record and uh, it went number one on the on the Billboard dance charts and that's when we had, we were yanked out of studio and stuck in a bus and put on the road for a couple of years to 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 support the album. Now I apologize because I know you have been asked this literally one million times, but I wouldn't be doing my job if I did not ask you to share the story behind why you wrote the safety dance because it indeed is actually about safety. Yeah, well, it's uh, the the origin story is that uh, it was the dying days of disco, the late seventies, and uh, every now and then the DJ in the clubs would uh, sneak in uh, Blondie's Heart of Glass or a B-52's Rock Lobster or a Debo's Satisfaction, and we would jump up on the dance floor and start pogoing, jumping up and down. It was the precursor to the slam dance and the mosh pit, but nobody had ever seen that kind of behavior before and the bouncers thought we were getting into fights and trying to provoke one or something and we would get kicked out so after a few times of having been tossed off out of clubs for for pogo dancing to new wave music 
I went home and did, home and did something about it. And it was, if I understand, a specific a bar in Ottawa. After getting it, got a kicked out of there, that's when you went home and wrote the song. That's it. That's it. I can't remember what the name of the bar was, but it definitely it was a bar and it was a place in Ottawa. I went I went back to Montreal and, and wrote the safety dance. Now the combination of the remix and the video was what made this song stand out in the new wave community. The video with its merry old England theme being described as jubilant and quirky. Ivan, you were on tour in New York City when suddenly you had to get to England right away to shoot the video, but also to then get right back to the US in time to keep the tour going. How'd you get this logistical timing problem resolved? We uh, flew there and back on Concord. I mean, it was uh, one of the exciting things about uh, about being in a band. Sometimes you get these kind of perks. The video definitely was uh, was a life changing experience too, because it uh, back in those days MTV only had about ten videos, uh, you know, in existence, and uh, so we got a lot of rotation. We got a lot of airplay, and uh, I went from being you know sort of being able to walk down the street relatively unnoticed to being having everybody know what I look like overnight. So that was what I meant by a, a life-changing experience. But the video definitely, definitely helped. And it's, it still helps the, to this day, I think, because it's a timeless video. It's like the fact that it was shot as a sort of a medieval kind of thing. It, it, it doesn't date the, the music. And it's like, sometimes you watch some eighties videos and, just by the way people are dressed and their hairdo and whatever the props and things like that and the colors you can tell that it was shot in the in the 80s I mean sometimes you can have a pretty good chuckle when you watch them but this video is uh like I say it's timeless and uh, it's like watching a western or something like that you can't really put a put a number on it so I think that's one of the things that that gave it its longevity I agree absolutely and on that note it's men without hats trivia time Ivan, who is the person of short stature wearing a Rhythm of Youth t-shirt in the Safety Dance video? He's Mike Edmonds. He's a, a very famous uh, actor. He's been, uh, he was in all kinds of movies. Uh, I, think he was the, I think he was the back end of Jabba the Hutt in, in Star Wars. And uh, he was, uh, he's been in all, he was in Time Bandits. He's, he, he's a, a very in-demand actor and uh, we, we're still in touch. We've been uh, in We've been planning a get-together pretty soon and over in England. We're, we have a European tour planned next year, so we're probably going to hook up then. Fantastic. And, of course, you did get all of those, and he was also in Harry Potter, so that's great. 1987 saw the release of Pop Goes the World, recorded in London, England at Eden Studio. Ivan, why London and not in Montreal? I think it was just the fact that we were working with a European producer. He chose the studio. That was, you know, it was just for another kind of experience it's making records are always you know great experience great learning experiences so that's i think we wanted to go for that we wanted to go for go to a studio where you know being in a studio where other big bands have worked with you know the people there have just the story just the stories that the engineers tell are are learning experiences in themselves so it's uh, it was great it was it was a, a very very fun experience now, when you're talking about videos, you have to talk about Pop Goes the World. This was your second international smash hit. And in the popular video, you incorporated comic references to your Quebec roots, including Big Bonhomme, Quebec City's winter carnival mascot. How'd you get Bonhomme involved? And was this a sanctioned and approved use? I don't know how, how sanctioned and approved it was, but uh, you know, the, I think the thinking back then was if this guy can get people to come and 
party in Quebec City in the middle of winter, the coldest place on earth, he might be able to help us sell a few records. So that was um, part of the thinking. Now, Ivan, you have noted that MTV and Much Music literally changed your life. Please share your perspectives on the impact of the music video channels in North America. Well, they were very, very influential. That was, you know, the sort of the technology, the, the new technology at the time. And uh, it just got us out there just to so many more people, you know. And um, I mean, some people, you know, before they had seen the video, one, I mean, I remember we ran into a fan in upstate New York and Poughkeepsie or something like that. And she said that until she had seen the video, she thought that we were black. She thought that the band was, having seen the, the, the heard the 12-inch record, thought that we were we were a black band. So uh, that's, I mean, the video was a great calling card. It was a great advertisement for the band. It was, it was, it was, you know, an awesome tool back in those days. In addition to videos, the technology was changing. A huge innovation occurred between your recording at the safety dance and then recording pop goes the world as MIDI happened. Ivan, what technology was MIDI and how did it change things for you? Well, MIDI was a technology that allowed all the instruments to be hooked up together. You could hook up your synths all together and play play three synths at the same time by, you know, off one keyboard. It, it, you could hook the drum machines up. You could hook the sequencers. It just made, it let all the instruments speak to each other digitally. And uh, before that, for the Safety Dance record for Rhythm of Youth, we did everything by hand. And so... It's it kind of you can you, you can kind of tell rhythm of youth has a kind of a sort of a, a a human feel to it. There's kind of a balance. It's not everything is metronomical. It's it's uh, it's it has kind of more of a, a human swing to it. Whereas pop goes the world is is you know a bit a, a bit more sort of perfect. It's a bit, bit more on on the beat, you know, and and it has those like like I say, you could you could you could play like ten cents at one time. So there's there's a lot more orchestration going on in pop goes the world the the songs are have more tracks to them they have they have more instruments on them whereas the rhythm of youth was still the kind of the real old school way of doing things now the aforementioned Jean-Marc Pissapiet told a good story about the first moment he realized he was famous when after their video release he was minding his own business at a McDonald's on St. Catherine Street and the autograph seekers got so intense that the manager actually asked him to leave because they couldn't continue to operate the restaurant. Ivan, do you remember an upstate New York shopping experience that really opened your eyes to your newfound fame? Yeah, we were on tour and we just we got off the bus one day to go into a to a grocery store to get some food, and uh, I was at the checkout counter paying for my for my stuff, and the cashier, the young woman cashier, looked at me and said started screaming, pointing at me, going, it's him, it's him. And the first thing I could think of was that she had confused me with somebody who had robbed the store, previously robbed the store. She was hysterical. Another cashier came over and said, what's what's wrong, what's wrong? She goes, it's him, it's him. It's the guy from the video. And that's when I realized, wow, that's the power of power of MTV, boy. That's um, because we were not, we were not, I wasn't dressed for a stage or anything like that. I was, you know, I probably think I had my hair up in a bun or something like that too. So it was, uh, it was quite a, that was a life-changing experience for sure. It certainly does show the power of video. Now, the other power you had is with touring. You do seem to enjoy touring and being on the road. I love it. I love it. We, since we put the band back together in 2010, like I say, we've been to more places than we went around the first time. And I love, I love performing. I love, uh, the people's smiles 
are the fuel that drives me and uh, it's it's great it's great to see like i say this cross-generational thing happening now too it's uh, but I, I i do love performing one notable musician that you toured extensively with was howard jones and you say that he showed you how to enjoy the rigors of the road what do you mean by that well he 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 did he's he's a the consummate professional and and he just he showed me how to uh how to make a life out of it how to how to enjoy doing what you do the road can be i mean a lot of people think it's have their own ideas about what it is but it can be quite boring sometimes the hotel rooms and the traveling and the you know air, waiting around for airports and i mean you know it's it's has a certain glamour to it but it has a also has a certain kind of repetition and 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 it's just boring sometimes and so he he showed me how how to make just how to make it more fun how to turn it into like you know by just just enjoying what you're doing and and making sound check uh you know a fun event instead of a stressful event and making the 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 making supper a, a fun event instead of a you know just just how to how to how to beat the boredom at the game well, certainly touring must have changed dramatically from the 1980s to the 2020s. I had Drew or not from Strange Advance on the podcast not long ago. He explained that whereas in their heyday in the 80s, he had management to handle everything. But for touring in 2023, Drew literally had to phone the venues himself, get out Google Maps to try and put together a reasonable road trip, figure out the logistics of getting everything and everyone move from point X to point Y to point Z. Does this strike a chord with you, Ivan? Not really. I still have them. Our management still does pretty much everything. I think the biggest change for me was the fact that uh, the hotel room keys don't have, they're all cards now and they don't have the numbers on them. So I, I forget what room I'm in. I have to go down to the front desk and ask what room I'm in all the time. So that's uh, kind of what, uh, I can't believe how we used to do it back then without GPS. I mean, I remember the bus drivers back then. I do remember how we did it. He would get out the, the McNally's roadmap uh, the night before and, and map out everything you know, little left turn, right turn, goal here for, you know, he had to map out our tri- trip to get to the hotel. Like it was a, it was a job. He spent, he would spend an hour every night previous to us leaving, to getting the thing ready. Now it's just like, they're just listening to their phones now telling them where to go. I'm, I'm amazed that we actually got there. I mean, one of the famous sayings back in the days though, was we're circling the hotel. That's when we're almost there guys. We're circling the hotel. Well, in addition to GPS being the big technological advancement, the other thing is the amount of gear you have to travel with. Strange Advance used to travel with tons of keyboards, but Drew says now he literally has everything he needs on a single laptop. Does this resonate with you, Ivan? Yeah, we have we have we use laptops now. That's made things a lot easier. We try to keep it as live as possible, but um, the technology definitely has 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 helped us a lot in in your monitoring digital boards that we bring all small digital boards that we bring around so we have the same mix every show that type of thing is has made things a lot easier so it's 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 good now we'd love to go behind the scenes on this podcast ivan if you don't mind share what a typical day on tour is like these days for you and for the band well it's just getting up in the morning having breakfast getting into the bus driving to the next gig getting dropped off at the hotel waiting for sound check sound check and then supper then then the show it's pretty much it's that's pretty much the routine every day it's uh like i say it's a lot more fun since i met howard jones though (laughs) (laughs) he got you on the right path yeah now as you noted for the past decade men without hats has toured the world 
along with the cream of 80s royalty playing, as you noted, for crowds in North and South America, Europe, Scandinavia, Jamaica, Australia, Mexico, South Africa. I think these retro 80s tour packages are great for the fans because you get five bands playing five of their biggest hits and boom, they get 25 great songs in one big show. How do you enjoy touring, not necessarily as the headliner, but as part of a retro 80s package of bands? I think it's great. I think I, I, I like doing those things. We've been on 80s cruises. We've been on, you know, 80s in the sand in the Dominican Republic. We've done all kinds of these things and, and they're fun. It's, it's like there's camaraderie between the bands is, is really a lot of fun too because I used, I, I used to liken being in a band back in the 80s, like being on a hockey team. It was kind of like there was a lot of competition whether you had a smile on your face or not, there was there was a lot of competition between bands. There was only so many places on the charts. There was only so many clubs to play in each town. There was only so much time. There was only so many newspapers to be interviewed by. There was, and the bands were competing for spots. and And now it's 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 a lot different. It's the bands are out there because they enjoy doing it because they still can because they're they're lucky enough that their fans are still listening to their music and supporting them and giving them the chance to go back out there. So they're very grateful for what they're doing, every last one of them. We were our first tour coming back when we put the band back together and was opening up for the Human League and the and the B fifty twos across across America. And that's I mean, that for me was just those are two of the reasons why I got into this business. And uh, so I like I said, I'm 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 blessed to be able to do this stuff. Well you mentioned the Human League and B fifty twos. Do you want to name check some of the other artists you've been playing with that were also big during Men Without Hats initial heyday. All kinds. We've done a lot of shows with with Block of Seagulls. We they're kind of our our touring buddies. But there's, I mean, it's it's everybody from Wang Chung to Go Go's to Mark Allman to Eddie Money. Even we did a show. There's there was, that was a great guy. Eddie Money was was a fabulous guy. He was when he came into the dressing room, it was like an explosion. Hey, I'm I'm Eddie Money, and he. He actually, when I first met Eddie Money, he, 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 his wife had baked cupcakes for the band with the the cover of each of our records, like on the top of each cupcake. It was just amazing. And he wrote me a handwritten letter, welcome to LA and blah, blah, blah. He was just an amazing, amazing guy. He was, he's, he's one of the guys that made it worthwhile. But I've been fortunate because like a lot of the people that I've met were, like I say, were my heroes when I like, um, just a couple years younger than than some of these people, so they were the reasons that I got into it, and so it was it was great meeting them. And not I haven't I haven't yet been disappointed by anybody. And there's not one single person that I've met on the road that you know kind of you know the, that I think that oh boy, I mean, I wish he would have been nicer or something like that. They're they've all been really really great. We've you know the English beat Paul Young. Katrina and the Waves, we I mean Berlin, we've done we've played with a lot of people and they've all been just all sweethearts. So I never lost one of them. That's fabulous. Now you mentioned you have done these eighties cruises. I have to ask you, is it lots of fun being on a cruise or too much intensity being stuck on a ship for days with, with your hardcore fans? You know, when we when we got asked to do the, the first one, I had just read something that were where I think it was Def Leopard had done one of them and they were they had just had a horrible time where they were cornered by like hundreds of fans every time they'd step out of their room and I'll tell you we were this was completely different we had you know I mean I picked my moments to you know walk around the ship but all the fans were ultra respectful it was it was great 
we've got another one coming up here and 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 I would do it in a, in a, in a second there was they were just great the fans like I say the fans were just really really respectful really nice everybody was just great and, and it was a lot of fun sounds like a fun cruise if you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Ivan Doroshuk please check out the more than 175 additional episodes available anytime we got Glass Tigers Alan Fru Strange Advances Drew Arnott Chalk Circles Chris Tate Crooner Matt Dusk and the boxes Jean-Marc Pisapia how they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves all episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. I want to ask you about licensing Men Without Hats songs for use in commercials or for TVs or movies. Who owns the songs and who makes decisions on what can or can't be used? Well, the the, the songs are owned, they're co-owned by the band and, and uh, the publishing company and... Um, I've pretty much given them the green light to 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 use them where they want. I'm not going to sit around and sort of try and dissect. I mean, you know, I won't let them use them for the Nazi party or anything like that. But it's like you know, it, it pretty much anybody can use them. They're, it's it's fair game, fair play. Now you alluded to this earlier, but the safety dance has been covered by Weird Al Yankovic. It's been heard on TV shows including Beavis and Butthead, Glee, The Simpsons, South Park, Family Guy. Do you have a favorite TV or movie use of the safety dance? My favorite TV is Beavis and Butthead. And uh, I love it when they're watching the video and I come, the video starts and the guy says, who do they think he is, Michael Jackson? And I think that's awesome. And uh, Weird Al, was, that was just that was almost as big as being in the Songwriters Hall of Fame because that's, for me, that's just a giant feather in my cap to have Weird Al cover one of your songs. It just means, you know, it's, uh, you've made it. Well, that's the definition of being embedded in the culture for sure. Now, most recently and memorably in the One World Together at Home concert during the COVID-19 pandemic, the Tonight Show's Jimmy Fallon performed the safety dance with healthcare workers and his house band, The Roots, with an added lyric, everybody's washing their hands. Were you aware Jimmy Fallon was using it or did you hear about it afterwards? I was aware he was going to use it, yeah. He's, he's used it a couple of times on his shows, but you know, that's one thing we're so blessed. I mean, my mom was a big Jeopardy fan and we, we, we've been answering a question on Jeopardy a couple of times too. So she was always stoked when, whenever that would happen, she'd call me right away and tell me, you're on Jeopardy again. <laughs> that's great. I think being on Jeopardy would be the pinnacle for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, and of course, the safety dance has been covered dozens of times, including by the box. Ivan, do you have a favorite cover version of the safety dance? I think it's got to be the Weird Al one. That's that. That's the one that, like I said before, that's that's the one that I think is 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 the coolest one. I want to ask you a little about the changing business of music in the '80s and even the '90s. You could actually earn money from your songs being played on the radio, but today on Spotify and other streaming services, it appears there is not any money to be made, and that the only benefit is the exposure. Do you have any comments on Men Without Hats catalog being available on streaming services? The way it goes, you know, it's that's that's the nature of the beast. The industry's cyclical anyway. I mean, that's I mean, there's not much you can do about it. It's uh, just it forces us to get out there and play more too. I mean, which is which is great, which because I love it. And, and uh, you just there's other just learn other ways to 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 make the money. Like I say, it's cyclical. I mean, it's a singles market now too. So it's like it reminds me of when I was a kid. 
the Beatles used to put out a single every month or something like that. And at the end of the year, they'd package it all into, into an album, you know, but it was basically a singles market. And that's kind of what we we've returned to now is, is, and I think that's good. It's, you don't have to sort of spend your whole life trying to put this, you know, a long record together. You can put singles out whenever you want and test them, test the waters. If it doesn't work, you pull it out, retool it a bit and throw it back in. And, and, uh, so, I mean, it's just, that's just the way it is. It's just, yeah, you got to go with the flow. Well, the other thing that's changed a lot is your role. When you started out, Ivan, pop music was a great way to get out your message and you saw yourself more like a politician. Whereas today, I believe you see yourself more as an entertainer. Quote you, I try to make music for people to enjoy during their stay on earth, unquote. Ivan, how would you describe how your purpose and role have changed over time? Well, that's it. You know, when I was young, that's kind of how, how you are. You know, there was, what we're lucky is that the people are still concerned with the same thing. I mean, it's a good thing and a bad thing because it means that not much has changed, but you know, they're still concerned with the same problems that I was talking about back then, which, which was if, you know, for pop goes the world, for example, if we don't stop treating mother earth the way we are she's going to blow up and uh but the safety dance was just like you know march to your own beat and you know don't be concerned with peer pressure which is another thing people are sort of faced with the kids of today are faced with a lot of peer pressure online with the social media and everything like that so i just see myself now i see myself more more of an entertainer i you know the the, the young young rebel in me has aged and uh, and uh, I get a lot of lot of pleasure just like I said performing and and seeing people coming and and using music as a time machine using it to relive a time and where things were happier for them too so it's uh, it, it all works out well on that note you've also described your current role as being more of a museum curator showing off a really interesting historical artifact in this case the safety dance You've mentioned already that you see out in your audience now, you see kids of your original fans. Yeah, it's, it's like the the song is known like pretty much all over the place. And uh, I think the song is is a lot bigger than us. It doesn't kind of belong to the band anymore. It it belongs to the people. And that's what I meant by going around with this with this museum piece. And uh, just because the, the song is, is kind of outside of us now, it's, it's, it's something that's larger than, than the band. A lot of people... I mean, a lot of people don't even know the title of the song. It's that You Can Dance song. And and, and then, you know, a lot of them don't know who the band is or you know, that the same band does Pop Goes the World or or whatever, you know. So it's, it's I that's how I feel sometimes is that I'm, and I have as much fun playing it as they do listening to it. So, or even more too. So, so that's, that's good for me. And when you talk about modern day, I have to ask, is Men Without Hats working on any new material? We are. We're always working on on new material, and uh, we hope to have some some new stuff out next year. We've got a couple of North American tours on in the works, and uh, a couple of '80s things happening, and like I said before, a European tour in at the end of the summer. So we want to have some some new product out there. We put out a couple of records a couple of years ago, and uh, we got a good reception from out the fans. Fans enjoyed it, so uh, we're we're always writing. Excellent. So you can see the hits and you can see the new stuff. And on that note, where can we best follow you and know where your next shows are? Well, we have safetydance.com is our is our website. But the, the place to reach me the easiest is on Facebook, either on my personal page or on the Men Without Hats page on Facebook. But we're we're all over social media. We have a we have a, 
have like Instagram page and whatnot, everything, Twitter and all the other ones too. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you for your time. It has been absolutely a pleasure to meet you, get to hear your stories and great to hear you still got the passion for getting out on the road. And I want to wish you continued success. Well, thanks. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And to the listeners, on behalf of Ivan Dorschuk, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Come on a journey like no other where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, 4Kids Flashback. 4Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback.